My name is Mary Carroll, and today we continue a sermon series on the Psalms. Today's reading is from Psalm 119, verses 97 to 104. We will be reading the Psalm together responsively. So Sarah's example was great. And we will also have a sung refrain. So the musicians will play through the sung refrain, then the choir will sing it, and then we will start our reading. So just follow along. my meditation all day long. Your, Your commandment, commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is always with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your decrees are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn away from your ordinances, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey in my mouth. Though your precepts gain understanding, therefore I hate every false way. What the Spirit is saying to the church. Thanks be to God. So, as Foster comes forward, Reverend Foster Freed, I should address him properly. There. From here on in, it's just Foster. Um, By the time the sermon's done, it may be a few It may be, so, yes, it, so we'll come up with something. Um, it, is, it is a blessing to have you with us again this morning, Foster. Uh, it wasn't so very long ago that you were here, three, three, four months, I think. I've lost track of time. Um, I'm supposed to say a few words about Foster. Many of you know him, and, uh, but since St. George's is such a great place for new people coming in, newcomers, we have a few over here, as a few out there, uh, then we should give you an official uh, uh, bio here. So here we go. 
after a year-long internship at First Baptist Church in Vancouver, First United Church. <laughs> Laura, that was a slip. Laura and I worshiped at Moses Lake First Baptist Church last Sunday, so I guess I've got, and right away the minister got up and he said, we are nothing but sinners there. So I knew I was in a Baptist church, so <laughs> there. Anyways, my apologies for that. I'll try and do better. Um, uh, and his ordination at Naramata in May of 1990, Foster began a 30-year ministry with the United Church of Canada, serving Grace United in Horn Payne, Ontario, for three years. And Foster was saying earlier that a lady asked him if Horn Bay was nor Horn Horn Payne was north of Barrie, uh, Ontario. And if you know Ontario at all, she was 600 miles short there. 600 miles farther north, 900 kilometers. Uh, the only thing farther north, I think, is Moosonee. Um, and then Foster was at Knox United in Parksville for 20 years and completing full-time ministry at Trinity United in Nanaimo for seven years. He retired in June of 2022, which is this year. I, yeah, I thought there's a typo here. Um, in 2020, uh, he continues assisting at St. Stephen's United Church in Qualicum Beach and covered a sabbatical at Knox this past summer. He and his wife Sherry still live in Parksville and enjoy the ongoing nearby presence of four adult children and three grandchildren. Correct? Only, only two of whom were in that photo. So oh, okay. We'll there. We'll have to get a new photo. So next time you're here, we want to have a new photo. Anyways, welcome, welcome to our pulpit this morning. We look forward to hearing your message, Foster. Thank you. Thank you so much. Wow. Wow. Thank you. Yeah, exactly. I'm glad they were applauded first. Uh, it's, it's very good to, to be here. It's, uh, this is a very welcoming place, and uh, Ryan is a, a very welcoming colleague, so this is a blessing. Let us pray. Now may the words of my lips and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. I will, uh, I will start. I will start by acknowledging that I took at least some small measure of comfort over the past few weeks, having agreed to participate with Ryan in this small series of services based on readings from the Psalms. I took a wee bit of comfort when I realized that Psalm 119 is so long that the worst case scenario in the event that I could not come up with a sermon would simply be to arrive here and then at the appointed time for this sermon, stand at this pulpit with head raised high, recite this lengthy psalm's entire 176 verses <laughs> with neither explanation nor apology, and then just sit back down as if that were the most perfectly normal thing in the world. Mind you, had I done that, it would not have been by heart. Of that you may rest assured, although I have it on reasonably good authority that the great William Wilberforce, who did so much to rouse England's awareness to the horror of slavery, 
Apparently, Wilberforce would recite the entire psalm by heart when he walked home from sessions of parliament. That's a remarkable achievement, given that this is not only the longest psalm, but the longest chapter in the entire Bible. I think I'm a big shot because I've managed finally to memorize the Magnificat. That makes me a rank amateur compared to Wilberforce, although in truth, I'm told that there are young adherents of Islam who have the entire Quran memorized. Yikes. But I digress. Beyond its great length, Psalm 119 is notable because it is an alphabetical acrostic. Not the only acrostic in scripture, but certainly the most remarkable. In the case of the other acrostics, they tend to be 22 verses long, with each verse beginning with one of the 22 letters of the Hebrew alphabet in alphabetical order. But here in Psalm 119, there is an entire stanza devoted to each letter of the Hebrew alphabet. And each of the eight verses in each of those 22 stanzas begins with that same letter. It's quite the tour de force. But, but perhaps when we consider the theme of the psalm, we ought not to be surprised at the lengths to which the psalmist was prepared to go because its theme is central to Jewish self-understanding, namely devotion, dedication to the law. And not just any old law, but quite specifically the Torah, the teachings, the sacred ordinances, the holy word given to ancient Israel through the advocacy and mediation of Moses. It is undoubtedly the case that Psalm 119 ranks as Scripture's most passionate, most passionate account of Torah devotion, devotion that continues to animate the life of observant Jews right down to our own day. All in all, it is a most formidable piece of sacred poetry but also for yours truly, a piece of sacred poetry that cannot help but raise some highly personal questions. Personal questions which I have no choice but to inflict on you this morning. Let me begin by noting that I have these past three years been making use of a devotional resource that makes heavy use of the Psalms. During that time, I have become far more intimately connected to the Psalms. But also during that time, I've come to realize that my affection for the Psalms is far from uniform. I say that without embarrassment. The Psalms, I believe, have a unique role to play in the overall shape of Scripture. They provide us with a human response to the Word of God. Incidentally, that explains why liturgically traditionalist churches don't conclude a reading from the, one of the Psalms with the solemn invocation, the Word of the Lord, thanks be to God, but rather append the Gloria Patri, glory to the Father and to the Son 
and to the Holy Spirit, perhaps as a way of making certain that the psalm, despite its being grounded in human experience, is ultimately offered to glorify God rather than the poet. And yes, given the rich humanity of the psalms, it's hardly surprising that we'll respond in a variety of ways to the variety of psalms housed in that great 150 psalm volume. In truth, there are psalms I deeply love. In truth, there are psalms with which I am very uncomfortable. And in truth, there are many that produce in me a a mixed response. Psalm 119, I'm afraid, falls into that middle category and, and does so both for what I would describe as a minor reason, but also for a really big reason. Now, the minor reason, which you may have picked up on in, the, in our responsive reading of the psalm, has to do with the psalm's tendency to celebrate not just God, but the wonderful piety of the poet. Your commandment makes me wiser than all my enemies. I have more understanding than all my teachers. I understand more than the aged. Although I now fall in that category, so there I really better be careful. And yes, I realize full well, I'm being a little uncharitable here. I realize full well that the poet's point is that his wisdom and understanding are the result of his having listened to another voice, the voice of God's commandments. I, I get that. But, but frankly, 176 verses of that sort of thing starts to get a little tired. That, that however, is a, is, a, is a small issue when placed side by side with the really big issue that nags at me. An issue having to do with something I said to Ryan way back when I first realized that I was going to be preaching on an excerpt from Psalm 119. What I said to Ryan was, you know, the danger here is that I'm going to end up preaching a sermon on Galatians. And yes, to some extent, I'm afraid that's precisely what's about to happen. I'm, I'm pretty certain that most of you are familiar with that little saying, the one about there being some things that once you've seen them, it's impossible to unsee them. Something like that happened to me about a decade ago when I picked up this book, the Anchor Bible Commentary on Galatians, written by a brilliant scholar by the name of J. Lewis Martin. So, to be honest, commentaries are things I tend to consult rather than devour. I, I rarely read a commentary cover to cover. They can be pretty dry. And I can only think of one commentary I have read twice from cover to cover and hope to read it at least a couple times more. Namely, this commentary on Galatians. The bottom line of Martin's approach to Paul's most controversial letter is Martin's insistence that Paul is really and truly saying what many of us, 
in this era of interfaith dialogue are kind of hoping Paul isn't saying, namely that the law, which is to say the Mosaic law housed within the Torah, has had its day, but that its day is at an end. Needless to say, them there are fighting words, indeed. My own um, New Testament prof at the Vancouver School of Theology of Blessed Memory, Lloyd Gaston, was a terrific scholar. And in some ways, Lloyd was a saintly man. To his credit, Lloyd was deeply involved in Christian-Jewish dialogue. And he sought ways of interpreting Galatians and also Romans so as to soften and to qualify Paul's radical edges. God bless Lloyd for that. My own perhaps somewhat more cynical take, however, is that a document such as Galatians will always prove a sore point with thoughtful Jewish readers, meaning that perhaps more of our energy ought to go into living together peaceably despite our differences, rather than seeking to smooth out the differences. That having been said, where I certainly do agree with Lloyd is his conviction that Paul never attempts to proscribe the role of the Mosaic law within the Jewish world, including, I think, the world of those Jewish communities that had come to follow Messiah Jesus. That does not change the rather stark fact, however, that Paul was determined, passionately determined, to oppose any normalization of the Mosaic law within the largely Gentile churches he was busy setting up across the Mediterranean world. Frankly, that leaves me no choice as someone who came into the mainly Gentile church from a Jewish background. Leaves me no choice but to ask some fairly weighty questions in response to the, the place of the 119th Psalm within the church of Jesus Christ. And so permit me, permit me in the time remaining this morning for me, permit me to ponder those questions under two broad headings. On one hand, the question of the, the practical significance of the law. In other words, the law as a locus of discernment in the daily shaping of our lives. On the other hand, the question of the spiritual significance of the law. In other words, the law as a focus for devotion in the daily shaping of our spirituality. And let me begin with the question of discernment by which I mean the practical question the question with which we all find ourselves wrestling from time to time, namely, as followers of Jesus, how then ought we to live? Well, as the poet who crafted the 119th Psalm knew in his bones, and as observant Jewish communities have demonstrated for three millennia, the Torah, the sacred law, has provided a strong foundation, a firm practical foundation for the day-to-day -day life of individual Jews and the Jewish community as a whole, guiding and governing pretty much every facet of life 
right down to even the most minute details. Paul, of all people, Paul who described himself in another one of his letters as someone whose righteousness under the law could be described as blameless, Paul, of all people, must surely have understood the profound implications of withholding that foundation from the mainly Gentile churches he was establishing. But, but here, here it's crucial to clear away some misconceptions that I think can prove misleading. On the one hand, we, we often reach for a distinction between faith and works and claim that Paul was grounding, was promoting faith, trust in Jesus, rather than the accomplishment of good works. That is a problematic distinction. Deeply problematic because Paul's letters from start to finish are chock full of words of encouragement. Words of encouragement urging faith communities to outdo one another in concrete acts of love, in concrete acts of compassion. On the other hand, we, we often reach for a distinction between law and gospel and claim that Paul was replacing the law with the gospel. And, and while that may well be true in some way, although it would be more accurate, I think, almost to say that the gospel had swallowed up that part of the Torah that mattered to Paul, namely the beautiful story. Nevertheless, the juxtaposition of law and gospel doesn't actually get at the question of how you and I go about living the life of discipleship once the law has been taken out of our hands. Where Paul does answer those practical questions, the real distinction isn't between law and gospel, but between law and spirit, the Holy Spirit sent to direct and guide and govern. Not a written code, but to take a page from the prophet Jeremiah. God's own word written on our hearts through the power of the Holy Spirit. On our hearts is those who seek to follow the Lord Jesus. And you know, in truth, thoughtful Jews and thoughtful Christians have been debating this one for a long time. And we'll no doubt keep right on debating it until God chooses to bring the, the curtain down on all our debates and all our disputations. Now, as Christians, we may well point our finger, as Jesus in the gospel sometimes seems to point his finger, at a tradition that may strike us as exceedingly legalistic. But, but the reason Judaism has produced the massive, mainly legal commentary known as the Talmud, and the reason the Talmud is a mere fraction of all the legal commentary that's part and parcel of observant Jewish life, is because laws will always need to be adapted to changing circumstances. That's true of Canadian law. How could it not be true of the laws that have been governing Jewish life for 3,000 years? E even if much of the commentary and much of the closely reasoned legal arguments will strike many of us as, well, as kind of obscure and arcane. But that having been said, just to, to move 180 degrees and look at things from a different point of view, thoughtful Jewish response to Christianity will tend to worry that we've been handed an impossibly expansive 
and terrifyingly vague canvas on which to paint our lives. As Paul insists, for freedom Christ has set us free, although I, I hasten to add that freedom can prove to be not only exhilarating, but a wee bit scary. To, to switch focus for a moment from Paul to Jesus, I'm not sure if Ryan, if Ryan did this, but go no further than that terrifying parable some of us preachers wrestled with earlier in the year, that of the Good Samaritan. Now, the lawyer who sets that parable in motion, he asks a perfectly legitimate question. He wants Jesus to help him to understand the parameters of a life of love. Are there degrees of responsibility that can help me to navigate the tricky waters in which I seek to love my family, my friends, my faith community, my neighbors, and the stranger I might happened to come across on the road. By way of response, Jesus tells a story which makes it abundantly clear that it's up to me. God help me. I get to decide. I get to answer the question, who is my neighbor, by setting up or choosing to refrain from setting up boundaries to help define neighborly love and responsibilities. And surely there's something a little unsettling about that, isn't there? Surely we can have the honesty to acknowledge that Jesus in telling such a parable, or Paul in dismissing the law and yet inviting us to live lives of expansive virtue, kindness, gentleness, self-control, self-giving, they have handed us a gospel that is a very tall order. Which, of course, is why Paul keeps speaking about the Spirit, keeps reminding us as those for whom the law will no longer be central, keeps reminding us that we are not alone. We live in God's world and that the Spirit will be there to guide and to govern us. It's a tall order, discerning what it means to be a faithful people, learning to make use of our God-given freedom in ways that do not embarrass the God who gave us that freedom. Discernment, the challenge, the inescapably practical challenge for disciples of Jesus to learn what it means to live rightly and well on the far side of the law of Moses. Side by side, side by side with the very practical role Psalm 119 envisions for the Torah, envisions for the Mosaic law, stands a second inescapable fact, namely that the psalm itself is a piece of devotional writing. This is poetry, not prose. This is celebration, not dispassionate analysis. This is an invitation to come to a party and to participate fully. A psalm of devotion that celebrates and invites us to join in the celebration. Invites us to place the gift of the Torah at the very center of our hearts as those who seek to be friends of God. But, but is that something we are able to do with full-throated enthusiasm as members of the church?
as members of a mainly Gentile church that cherishes and honors its roots in the piety of the Hebrew scriptures, but that may need at the end of the day to recognize that its life is grounded on a different foundation and that its life of devotion marches to the beat of a very different drum. And and here, as I bring these thoughts to a close, I really am going to bring them to a close, Bear, bear with me as I draw attention to two Jewish festivities that just happen to be taking place right now. You can't script this kind of thing, as well as Jewish festivities that are about to take place over the next two days. Festivities that could not be more relevant if they tried to the very real challenge posed for us by the 119th Psalm. Festivities which I think get to the very heart of the devotional question raised for us by this psalm. This psalm that invites you and me to lives of Torah devotion. You see, right now, observant Jews throughout the world are celebrating the Fall Harvest Festival, known as Sukkoth, the Feast of Booths. That festival will come to an end on Monday at sundown, Monday at sundown. And then a one-day festival will be celebrated, a joyous festival known as Simchat Torah, meaning rejoicing with the Torah. Worship services on that day will include a reading from the final verses of Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy, the fifth and final book of the Torah, and then immediately switch to the opening verses of Genesis, starting the yearly cycle of Torah readings all over again. And it really and truly is a joyous occasion, often marked by dancing and singing for hours up and down the aisles of the synagogue with the the Torah being honored not as a mere sacred scroll, not as a mere object, but as a living presence, anchoring and animating the community serving as the living word of God for the Jewish people and in a very real sense the living word of God promised for all people. That sense of Torah, not as a mere book, but as the living word of God stands at the very heart of Jewish piety. But now here's the real kicker. That festival Simchat Torah, rejoicing in the Torah, begins at sundown tomorrow, but what starts at sundown tonight and runs throughout the day tomorrow is the final day, the eighth day of Sukkoth, the fall harvest festival, the feast of booths to which I alluded earlier. Now those of you who know your New Testament Those of you perhaps with a particular familiarity with John's gospel may be thinking that something here rings a bell. If so, you're quite correct because it is in the seventh chapter of John's gospel that we hear Jesus standing in the midst of the Jerusalem temple on the final day of that very feast, the the very feast Jews will be celebrating starting tonight. On on a day where the festivities turn to the blessing of water, we hear Christ proclaim, let anyone who is thirsty come to me. Let the one who believes in me drink. 
an assertion, an invitation, which from the perspective of normative Judaism is absolutely over the top. But from the perspective of a gospel people, from the perspective of those who have come to experience the living word of God, not in the Torah, but in the face of Jesus. An invitation which may well be experienced is irresistible, as well it should be. Helping also to explain why at the end of the day I can give two hearty cheers, but not quite a full-throated three cheers to the 119th Psalm with its summons to devotion, devotion which I for one have chosen in fear and trembling to offer not to the Torah, but to the one in whose name you and I have gathered this day, the word who was made flesh for us, the one who lived and loved, who suffered and died for us, the one who lives again for us all, this one who perfectly embodies the light and life and love, the overflowing wisdom of the God who graced and still graces the lives of a Torah people, for he is nothing if not faithful and all his promises are sure and true. But yes, the God who graces and will always grace the lives of this very differently formed people, a gospel people who seek to live out their salvation in the spirit of the one, the spirit of the one who came to us in Jesus Christ, the God whose fiercely relentless love has promised at the end of time to gather all his children and all creation home. And glory be to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to God from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus, now and forevermore. Please stand for our hymn of the day, Spirit Open My Heart.